You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living here on Radio Maria Canada a Catholic voice wherever you are. I want to thank you for joining me to, of course, continue this uh, missionary outreach that we've been doing for a number of years, uh, sharing the gospel. And I want to thank each and every one of you for your prayerful and financial support over the years. Archbishop Sheen will be giving a reflection today entitled, Who Am I, the Stranger Within? Now, that has an interesting uh, title, but again, it'll only take you a few minutes to uh, just uh, have a smile on your face. And uh, I think, you know, Bishop Sheen did this each and every week. He'd have these great titles to his show, and you just waited in anticipation for uh, the punchline or the theme of the broadcast, but uh, he never let us down. So uh, today, well, there was no exception to that. He will continue to uh, lift our souls uh, to heaven. He will uh, introduce us uh, again uh, to our Lord. Uh, I always say reintroduce us because he helps us bring us closer to Christ with all of his uh, talks that he gives. And so he'll talk again on who am I, the stranger within, and he'll also give a reflection on trusting in God. So may I encourage you now to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Friends, The title has been announced, The Stranger Within. I changed the title just a few minutes before I came on, not the general subject. When I planned the telecast, I thought I might call it, Who Am I? But I didn't like to put it in the form of a question, because sometimes questions get you into trouble. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was once interviewed, along with a number of other famous authors. And it was one of those typical questions that are sometimes presented to authors, namely, if you were shipwrecked on an island and you could have only one book, which book would you choose? Some said Shakespeare, others said the Bible, Chesterton answered, 
Thomas's Practical Guide to Shipbuilding. <laughs> and I remember, too, I was once uh, giving a lecture in a hall and I was talking about not getting down in the mouth and so forth. And, and I mentioned Jonas. And someone heckled me for the audience and said, how was Jonas in the belly of the whale for three days? That was another question. I said, I don't know. I said, when I get to heaven, I will ask Jonas. He said, suppose Jonas isn't there. Well, I said, then you ask him. <laughs> So this question, who am I, really figured in one of the great Broadway plays of a few years ago, when a character met the violent death, his father said of him, he, he didn't know who he was. There's a kind of an amnesia that is going on in the world as regards human personalities. They are lost persons. They never enter, the, enter themselves to ask, well, who am I? Do you remember reading that famous book of George Orwell called 1984? Orwell looked forward to that year when the world would be to a great extent under communist domina domination and he said that we would be full of what he called unpersoned. The kind that just drop out of existence like sometimes Soviet dictators. And uh, we are, as a matter of fact, today almost made intelligible in forms of numbers because we, we are asked, what is your telephone number? What is your license number? What is your social security number? What's the number of the, of the street in which you live? And so on and so forth. William J. White, uh, in his book, Organization Man, says that we are... Today, all enveloped in organizations and groups so that our personality is completely lost. We know not who we are. Maybe some of us are just like uh, oranges. We can be substituted. I don't like this one. I'll take that one. Or... Maybe we're like oranges that are squeezed, in which the personality is ground out of us in order to make the collective orange juice of the totalitarian state. So we, we hate to be different, to be out of step, follow the crowd, 
Everybody's doing it. Even the children will say to their mother, but mom, everybody's wearing them. Well, when is it that we ever become conscious of ourselves and answer that question? Now, I'm going to be very dry, or a little drier than usual for a moment, to talk about two German philosophers. Now, the reason I talk about philosophers this way and say they are German is in order to make you realize that I am learned. You see, if I didn't mention German philosophers, you would think, well, he doesn't know anybody we don't know. <laughs> so there must come moments in every telecast when one puts on this air of learning. Uh, well, this German philosopher, rather a sad one he was, too. Heidegger. Heidegger said, one thing that makes, makes us face ourselves is death. Because he said there is something opposite us, which is non-existent. And in the face of that, I must inquire about myself. And another German philosopher, equally sad, was Jasper. Jasper said, there are boundary situations, too. Grief, agony, worry, fear, dread. All of these things, he says, make us ask, well, what's it all about? What role do I play in, in this drama? But I think quite uh, beyond the seriousness of these German philosophers, there are other things, too, that make us forced to answer the question, and that is sometimes our satiety and our boredom. You know, that's one going to be one of the effects of our era of carnality is boredom, fed upness. If there was any one who ever knew the excesses of a life of carnality, it was Lord Byron, a great poet. You remember the lines he wrote? My years are in the yellow leaf, flowers and blooms of love are gone, the worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. There was a young man who went to see a Parisian psychiatrist a few years ago. And this young man said to him, I'm bored with life. I don't know why I'm here, what I'm doing. 
And the psychiatrist said, did you ever hear of Grimaldi? Yes, he said. Now he says, there's a man who's the leader of Café Society in Paris. Everybody knows him. He's the one who knows how to get fun out of life. He knows why he exists. You go to see Grimaldi and ask him. He will tell you. And the young man said, I am Grimaldi. <laughs> now we come to a kind of a new phase in this inquiry. All the while that we suffer these boundary situations, we feel that there's someone within us, a stranger within. We feel dual. There's a civil war going inside of us. Two opposing forces. As one professor put it, there's a me and there's a PhD. And even the old Latin Virgil poet put it, I see and I approve the better things of life, the worst things of life I follow. He knew this, this conflict that was inside of him. And so each and every person almost feels at times that there's a kind of a judge out there seated in judgment. And we have a sensation of praise and a sensation of blame. And this is quite independent of what anybody around us thinks. Or everybody else around us can say, that's right, and we know it's wrong. Or that's wrong, and we know it's right. There's a stranger inside. How to describe this stranger is rather difficult. There was a, a farmer who did a lot of corn stealing from the cribs of other farmers, and he took his son along. And he put the son as a lookout. And he said to his son before he started stealing the corn, Did you look up the road? Yes, said the boy. Did you look down the road? Yes. Anybody coming? No. The boy said, But Dad, you better look up. And that's it. One has the feeling that someone is looking. Who this someone is, we do not know. But someone is looking. Someone sees. There were two brothers who owned a grocery store. And uh, there was a lot of pilfering going on. So they uh, dug a hole in the ceiling. And then they circulated around the town that they always had somebody looking down from a hole in the ceiling. 
you know that after a short time, stealing stopped. And it was surprising to see the number of people that would come in, and as soon as they would enter the store, they would look up. <laughs> well, that's what this stranger is within. We all have it, everyone in varying degrees. I can remember when I was in college. Here was one where it was almost though the stranger was out. We had night prayers about eight o'clock, and we all went into the chapel. And hardly any lights in the chapel. And one night, one of the boys filled the holy water font with ink. So when every boy went in, put his finger in the ink, blessed himself in the dark, couldn't tell it. So during the prayers, of course, the prefect looked out and he saw black marks on every forehead and he said to all the boys, everybody out. So he lined everybody up. There was only one who didn't have the mark on the forehead. <laughs> And uh, I also know of a girls' college where there was a party one night, and all of the college girls got together in, in the big fancy parlor where only rich visitors are allowed. Well, the next morning there were cake crumbs and, and uh, uh, soft uh, drink bottles and everything scattered around the room. And the prefect the next day, and all of the college girls walked by the parlor. And she pulled out eight of them, and these eight looked in the room as they went by. No one else looked. They gave themselves away. They had been in there the night before. And now to describe this stranger within, perhaps the best way is to say that there's an encounter that goes on inside of us. We're meeting someone. They, yes. Not always a sense of presence, but a kind of a sense of absence. We, we feel like a broken bone. When a bone is not where it ought to be, it hurts. And so, too, when the mind and the conscience is, is not exactly where it ought to be, it gives a kind of a pain and the stranger within is meeting us. Now, what's the nature of this encounter? Well, let me tell you the story of an encounter and historical fact. And we will come to the names as we unfold the story. Once upon a time, there was a young man who was a knave, a deceiver, a charlatan, a crook, and a double-crosser. He 
cooperated with his mother in a great lie. He cheated his brother. He cheated his uncle. And he seemed to forget all about it. But because his brother was in pursuit of him, he ran away to another country. His name was Jacob. And he stayed there for 20 years. And then he starts back. And all of the ghosts that he thought were buried now began to appear because he heard that his brother was coming out with an army of 400 men to meet him. And he was afraid. His brother was Esau. He knew he had done his brother wrong. So, still the crook, what does he do? He sends on the other side of the river hundreds of sheep and cattle, eleven of his sons, not all of them, just eleven, eleven of his sons, two of his wives, not all of them, and, and some of his servants, and he said, if my brother asks what you're doing here, you say, all of these are gifts for you. I love you so much. So he lays down now to sleep. And he has a dream. It was a curious dream. It was about a wrestling match. Maybe it was all in the dream, maybe it was only in his conscience, maybe it was real, but at any rate, he was wrestling. And this one with whom he was wrestling was a stranger, and they wrestled on through the night. There was an encounter, an encounter with himself and with his conscience. And in this wrestling match, Jacob was wounded in the thigh. This nature that he thought was so self-sufficient which made him so complacent because he was a trickster. Now, it's weakened. He had trusted in himself, and now he has to limp. But the wrestling match still goes on. And finally, the wrestler says to him, 
What is your name? In other words, who are you? Face up to yourself. Answer the question, who am I? He said, my name is Jacob. He saw himself, Jacob, the supplanter, the crook. In this wrestling match, suddenly there was an encounter with himself. He saw himself as he really was. But at the same time, opposite this wrestler. And the wrestler says to him, Your name is no longer Jacob. Your name is Israel. Israel, one who struggled with God. He was in an encounter with a stranger within. And here he's being praised for it, and being told. Now you know the stranger. Now you know the name of the wrestler. Now you know the one that you'll meet tonight. And Jacob then makes bold to say, And what is your name? should not this wrestler tell his name? Well, because when you name anything, you seem to have a complete understanding of all that it is. You name a plant, you name a person. Oh yes, I know, I know him, I know her, I know it. And if this great wrestler had named himself, there would have been a kind of a total comprehension of all that he was. Being, refusing to name himself, Jacob had to learn and that here he was face to face with a great unknown, something incomprehensible, something that we meet in awe, in loneliness, and in fear. In other words, a stranger cannot be completely and totally comprehended. And Jacob finally came to know that this was Wisdom within, and the wrestler said to him, Let me go now, for the day is breaking. Why, if he was so strong that he was able to wound Jacob, did he ask to let him go? Because the wrestler's name was God. That is the stranger within. And he never stays unless we bid him to stay. 
In other words, there are two classes of people in the world. Those who feel the presence of God and those who feel his absence as the stranger within. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. I'm going to talk about the impracticality of the Catholic Medical Mission Board. Poets are impractical. Saints are impractical. Artists and philosophers are impractical. The world has room only for the practical people. And here we're celebrating the anniversary of 50 years of impracticality, and I want to show you how this impracticality runs through. First of all, the foundation of this, then through those who help, those who are members of the board, and the pharmaceutical companies themselves. First of all, the foundation. It was founded by Dr. Flagg, who had a flock of children, which made him a very impractical man in the 20th century. <laughs> and Father Garachet, in particular impractical. He told me once that when he was named the head of the medical board, Cardinal Spelden, Spellman called him to his office. He said, Father Garachet, you are very well known for writing books. You give retreats, you give sermons. You are entering into an area with which you have no familiarity. You were sending out a few people to visit doctors. 
you ask them for samples. And they gather up the samples and bring them to you. And then you send them out to a few missions throughout the world. The missions need more than that. Where are you going to get the money? Who is going to pay for the freight? Who will pay for the warehouses in case you grow? Have you ever thought of any of those practical problems? Tell me, Father Garishay, how are you going to do it? And Father Garishay said, well, I guess I'll have to trust in God. And that's how the Catholic Medical Mission Board was started. Impractical. It started with God. The donors. You are very impractical people. It would seem the better part of a secular wisdom, with the little that anyone has these days, to save and harbor what you have. But you are so impractical that you really believe that by helping Father Walter and the mission board and the missions, that you yourself will be helped by God. Well, you're right. There was a visitor that went to one of the celestial regions, not heaven, and he was introduced to a magnificent banquet room. The table was spread with precious viands and wines and fruits and meats. But everyone at table looked emaciated and starved and hungry. And the visitor said, why are they so hungry looking with all that food? He said, look at them. They all have their arms pinned out straight. They can't eat. So the visitor was taken to another room where the fine, precious foods were served. Everyone was happy, well-fed, and the visitor said, look at them. Their arms are all fastened out straight, too. How do they eat? Oh, they feed their neighbor. That's what you have done. You've been impractical. You fed your neighbor, and you were fed. You took care of the Lord's poor, and the Lord began to take care of you. That's why you're to be praised for your impracticality and just for not saving everything for yourself. That's very important in life. Things that we keep for ourselves alone often spoil. If the flesh is kept only for itself, it turns into lust. 
Wisdom and education is kept only for itself. It becomes sophistication. If power is kept for itself, it becomes tyranny. And if money is kept for itself, it creates a hardening of the arteries. We become hard and yellow like gold. So because you've not kept what you have, you are remembered. You're remembered tonight. You are remembered in heaven like David was remembered. King David was born in Bethlehem a thousand years before his Savior was born. And there came back to him the boyhood recollections of the well of Bethlehem. And very often we sometimes have a yearning for a taste such as we had when we were young and David said, oh, I wish I had some water from that well of Bethlehem. It was in the hands of the Philistines. And four of his brave soldiers said, we'll break through the lines of the Philistines and bring you the water. And when the water was brought to King David, he held it up and he said, water that has been purchased at so great a price cannot be drunk. And he poured it out upon the ground. And his deed has been remembered in Scripture. If he drank it, it would never have been noted. You have not kept the blessings that others have brought to you. You have poured it out to Father Walter and the missions. And because you've done it, you remembered. You are remembered and... Uh, we thank you tonight for being so very impractical. And not only you, the donors, but also the pharmaceutical companies. Now, we live in a capitalistic country. Socialistic countries have no charities because everything is in the hands of the state. But as a capitalistic country, we have given great example to the world, and no one has given a greater example than pharmaceutical manufacturers. They have, in the course of years, contributed millions of dollars of worth of drugs and medicine and equipment to the sick into the needy of the world. They have, in their own peculiar way, lived up to the recommendation that was given to the Israelites when God gave them a law. He said, when you reap your fields, gather not every sheaf. When you pluck your grapes from the vine, cut not every bunch. When you gather fruit from the trees, leave some hanging there for the passerby. And the pharmaceutical manufacturers have left some grapes on the vine 
Sheaves on the fields and fruit in the trees for the passers-by. For the entities of the world who could never thank them. That's why they are rather unique. They have somehow or other, and here I appeal to a natural motive, shown care. Remember Gaethy's story about care? It is something that can be lost in any civilization. Care or attention to others, a sensitiveness, a delicacy. And according to Gaethy's story, care had one day crossed a river and at the bank gathered up some of the clay and began to mold the clay. And when the clay had been molded, Jupiter passed by. And Jupiter was asked by care to give it a soul, to give it a spirit. So Jupiter gave the clay a spirit. And care then said, name it after me. Jupiter said, no, name it after me. And Saturn passed by and said, let me decide. And Saturn said, When the spirit leaves the body, it goes back to you, Jupiter. And when the clay leaves, it will go back again to the earth. And care, because you have taken care of it during life, it will not be named after you. It will be called Homo man, because it was made from humus, clay. And the pharmaceutical companies have made this gift just to humanity, to human clay. They've used a religious organization to distribute wisely. They've used it. But leprosy has no religion. Neither has hunger. Neither has disease. And the pharmaceutical companies have just extended this bounty because they cared for what? They cared for humanity. They cared for man as man, whose spirit will one day go back again to God. Just clay will go back again to the earth. I therefore cannot speak too highly of what these companies have done. Those who take a short-sighted view of the world have called capitalism predatory. If there were any instances of it being predatory, certainly they've been destroyed, those instances. 
by the giving on the part of the drug companies. Because they have, in their own peculiar way, made an offering that is not predatory. I mean to say they've not taken to themselves everything that they might take. If we thought in terms of profits, a capitalistic country company would say, profits are for me. I take them to myself. When you're not predatory, there's a division, there's a sharing. Why was it, for example, that God would never accept in sacrifice certain predatory animals? The lion will devour the bullock, The leopard will charge at the goat, and the wolf will eat the lamb. But the lion, the leopard, and the wolf may not be offered in sacrifice. Why? Because they're predatory. Whom will God accept as a gift? sacrifice. We read he accepts the bullock. He accepts the goat. He accepts the lamb. He accepts not the animals that pursue. He accepts the pursued. And that's what you have done. You pharmaceutical people, You've helped the pursued. And the Lord will bless you for it. Thanks for being so impractical. Then the board itself. Father Garishay, Father LeBeau, Father Kennedy, Father Walter. And all that are served on the board, they are merely a distributing agency in the name of Christ. All the gifts that have been received pass through their hands and become sanctified. They are continuing the mission the mission of Christ the Healer. St. John tells us that at the, end, at the end of his gospel, he mentions it, if I had written down all of the miracles that Christ had worked, the world would not be large enough to contain the books thereof. So great was his healing. He absorbed wounds, diseases, deafness, blindness, hemorrhages. I say he absorbed them because, remember the woman who touched the hem of his garment? Our Lord turned around and said, who touched me? 
And the woman had to make herself known because she made him an unclean. Any woman who suffered from a hemorrhage of blood, according to Israelite law, made the person touched unclean. So our Lord was made unclean. He took our sins. St. Matthew quotes the prophet Isaiah. He took upon himself our sicknesses and our diseases. That's what the Catholic Medical Mission Board has done. And the reason we are so close to them, by we I mean, for example, Bishop Boardman here, Bishop O'Mara, and Monsignor Asip, and many others here, we belong to the propagation of the faith. You see, we are just another side to the Catholic Medical Mission Board. Healing goes with forgiveness, and forgiveness with healing. The making people physically whole goes also with reconciling them. Too often in our modern world, there's a tendency to concentrate just on healing alone, forgetting that there must also be forgiveness and reconciliation. So we've worked in close cooperation, one with another, that there might be verified always the incident that happened when our Lord was in a crowded room and a paralyzed man was let down through the roof. Our Lord said, your sins are forgiven. He did not even mention a word of thanks. And when our Lord told him to stand, to take up his bed and walk, go home, then he was happy. He understood that the healing was bound up then with forgiveness. And this is the total mission of the Church. And that is why I, who have been with the propagation of the faith for so long, and been with the Catholic Medical Mission, mission Board so long, am happy to be here as a spokesman for both, for healing and for forgiveness. And I join with them in their love of impracticality. And then finally, doctors. Doctors, nurses, therapists, hospital workers. At the present time, the applications received by Father Walter from doctors and nurses and other medical therapists runs between 70 and 100 a year. These medical personnel, this medical personnel does not receive a cent when they go on the missions. They're using merely their skill as the pharmaceuticals are using their products for the sake of the sick. A husband and wife and sometimes children will go down. And a short or a long period of time. One of the most famous of all, I suppose, was Father, was no, Dr. Tom Dooley. I remember talking to him once when he came back from the Far East. 
I asked for his most unusual experience. He told me that he had gone into a classroom where a communist teacher had driven sticks into the ears of the children because they had heard the Our Father. And he met a priest who had nails driven around his head in the shape of a crown of thorns. The communists did that. What made them ever simulate the crowning of the head of Christ? Is evil so instinctive that it knows without knowing almost? Our supreme goodness on this earth was touched and attacked by evil. And he said he pulled out all of the nails and poured in penicillin and gave him penicillin and went back two months later and found him serving his people. Mother Teresa. She has dragged 25,000 starving people off the streets of Calcutta. She received 15,000 of them into the embrace of Christ on their deathbed. And I said, how could you drag a dying man off the street and still make a Christian? Well, she said it was very simple because they would say to me when I brought them into our little hut, I would say, would you like to hear something about Christ? And they would say, are, are you like Christ? No, she said, I am not, but I try to be like him. They asked, is Christ like you? No, she said, I try to be like him. Well, then I want to be a Christian. Such was the example of those who cared for the sick. She, too, is impractical. And this summarizes the litany of impracticality that has brought us to the end of these 50 years. And I, I rejoice in what has been done. I plead for a furtherance of the bounties. While I confess to a certain kind of liturgical impatience with many of our intercessory prayers that are said in church. Not all of them, but some of them. Honestly, my heart turns in upon itself now that it's better than it ever was before and can do tricks. <laughs> my heart turns in upon itself when I hear a prayer, let us pray for the flood victims of India. Let us pray for the starving people of Ethiopia. Are we shifting the burden to the shoulders of Christ that's already worn thin from his cross? Is not that our burden? We pray, yes, but there has to be action. And the reason we are gathered here is here 
is simply because we have combined prayer and action. And you are all going to be rewarded. All you donors, doctors, nurses, pharmaceutical manufacturers, workers, God will remember you. And the tribute, I suppose, that is to be paid to you is a tribute that was paid to a doctor in Louisiana. He was a good, kindly doctor who gave himself practically, gave practically his life to care for poor Mexicans. Finally became engaged to a lovely young girl. And there came the night of the engagement party. And on the way he received word that the Mexican mother was dying in childbirth. And instead of going to the engagement party, he went to take care of the mother and save both the mother and child. The girl broke the engagement. He certainly could not have cared enough for her to have left her in the lurch that night. So he continued to spend the rest of his life caring for the poor and the sick. He could never afford an office on the down street floor. So he had an office above a grocery store, the little sign down below. And when he died, the people wondered what tribute could they pay him? Monument they could not afford. But it had to be worthy of the man. And finally the idea struck them. Let's take that sign that's just alongside of the grocery store and put it on his coffin. And they did it. And as the thousands of people passed reverential gratitude for the impracticality of this man they all read Dr. Updike upstairs and to you all upstairs you have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living hosted by Al Smith here on Radio Maria Canada